You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, it's all about the US-Australia alliance, with conversations on Australia-US Special Forces cooperation and opportunities to strengthen the alliance through enhanced mutual understanding. Beck Shrimpton speaks to Chris Mayer, Assistant Secretary of Defence for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict. They discuss the origin of Special Operations Forces, the role they play in integrated deterrence, and their ability to work across multiple domains. They also discuss the history of cooperation between Australian and US Special Operations Forces, and the importance of wargaming to force design. Thank you for joining us on the ASPE podcast. Chris Mayer, Assistant Secretary, as um, we have introed for Special Operations and Low Intensity Conflict. You have an enormous remit and uh, as we have just talked about in a, in a previous conversation, your functions actually merge traditionally what are quite separate in the US system. Can you give us a brief introduction to you and your role? But as well, what I'd like you to do for us is to talk a little bit about special operations, special operations forces. You know, what was the origin of, of this capability? Where's it going? And what's the US doing with it? And what are you doing with it? Well, thanks, Beck, and thanks for having me here. So it is, as you say, a bit of a unique role that I play in that I have both the responsibility for all the policy-related aspects of special operations, and it's actually even broader than that, responsible for counterterrorism, counter-narcotics, information operations, what we call irregular warfare, so warfare that's not the traditional conventional type, obviously aligns closely with some of what our special operations forces do, and then stabilization and other things that are more on, if you might, the softer side of the military enterprise. And then at the same time, I have responsibility for all of the administrative aspects of our special operations forces. So for the those that don't speak uh, military as much, that means the organized train and equip piece is more akin to what our Army or Navy or Air Force does. Our, in the U.S. system, our special operations are semi-service-like. So they have a significant element that is uh, reflected in the other services, but especially for special operations. To your second question, the real origins of a joint special operations enterprise in the U.S. um, go back to the origins in the early 1980s, where some of the operations and most notably, um, our effort to rescue our hostages in Iran did not go well. And one of the clear takeaways was the lack of jointness on a regular basis is really critical. So every one of the services, Navy, Air Force, Army, had their own special operators, but they didn't routinely operate together. And so it was really a, a focus of effort from our Congress to drive that jointness and that integration. It has served us very well in the counterterrorism fights and in some of the crisis response activities, whether that is in recent days helping to get our diplomats out of Sudan or some of the counterterrorism operations uh The Osama bin Laden raid is probably the most well-known in which we had operators from all our services that operated together uh, regularly. And I think as I look to your question of what special operations will do in the future, especially in the context of our national defense strategy and looking at campaigning and really trying to achieve integrated deterrence against 
both the PRC and Russia are pacing and acute threats. Soft special operations forces, their jointness, their ability to draw on the resources and the expertise of their services, but also have a unique element that's the special operations piece and being able to partner with with foreign militaries, be able to work across very complex multi-domain divides. So whether that's cyber, whether that's the human domain, whether that's space, whether that's undersea, is really where there, there is not a bounded frame in which our software are only working in one piece. So that ability to really flex across multiple different problem sets, multiple different domains, we think is a real, real force multiplier for um, our special operations forces. So it's a powerful concept and I wonder as you think about and put such an emphasis on partnerships, I think that's something that special operators uh, have always done and need to do actually to achieve their mission. But as, as you do that and I think about the ADF, that, that very joint special operations approach that the US has, how does that go when it comes to interact with a system like Australia's where when we think special operations and the way we organise for special operations, it's very much an army capability and managed by army and, and thought about certainly by the Australian people as a, a subset of an of an army capability. How do you how do you deal with that? And how what would be your advice, if you like, or what would you like to see Australia's special operators do to um to perhaps increase their jointness and make it a bit easier for you to partner with us? With the humility of not telling anybody uh, what they what they should do, I think I would reflect on a, a couple places where there is a deep relationships with the Australian special operators that maybe gives more ability to diversify to the points that you're asking. So I think first off, many of our best partners on a whole host of different challenges over really the last two and a half decades have been Australian soft. So whether that's taking now senior officers that were at earlier stages embedded with our U.S. special operators, sometimes at a headquarters level, so really learning the system. And as I mentioned in the previous forum, uh, Major General Paul Kenny has extensive experience in our system that at times we consult him on how our own system works. But I think that also that the operational level of understanding how we operate as different forces really means that we've been able to build off the requisite experience and expertise and comparative advantages, frankly, of our different different forces. I think in the counterterrorism fights that have been the focus of both our soft enterprises over the last 20 plus years, uh, primarily ground-based or army-based uh, approach has been fine and, in fact, in some respects has been reinforced. I think as we look forward, though, to the environments we're headed, and frankly, probably in 2001 when the 9-11 attacks occurred, we weren't thinking space. We weren't thinking even really cyber. These are domains that we're going to have to be able to operate. And one of the things special operations has always done well is able to take a more complex environment and be able to operate using a series of tools in an entrepreneurial way to do so. And I think, you know, as as you all are thinking about your own uh, national defense needs, being able to operate in the maritime environment seems very important from a special operations perspective. Being able to, at a minimum, integrate, if not draw on special operators in the air domain, I think is is key and one of the things that we continue to emphasize. But then being able to 
also merge into areas where, as I mentioned, space, cyber, that have forces that we're investing in on the U.S. side. I know you are all also on the Australia side, and that's going to have to have a degree of literacy amongst our special operators to be able to work with those folks, bring those capabilities to bear. So I'm sure you all, uh, based on the conversations I've had yesterday, know this is the case, thinking across that much broader problem set. And that would be, you know, you asked for my suggestion, that would be my suggestion of where uh, more investment might be required, even if it's just in thinking strategically through how special operators would bring the the benefit of their capabilities and their their mindset to those environments. And certainly this is something that animates a lot of our thinking as well on the U.S. side. Thank you very much. That's, uh, that, that's really interesting and I think it's enormously helpful. As we, we move from the benefits of, of personal and institutional relationships to policy and strategy, there are some distinct parallels between where the US national security strategy and national defence strategy have gone and where the Australian recent defence strategic review is going. And I think that offers really interesting opportunities for us to focus on some of those newer capabilities that you've just talked about or some of those areas that perhaps we haven't thought about special operations. Can you talk to me now about campaigning and integrated deterrence. These are terms that I think we struggle with a little bit here. They seem to be to be all encompassing, but we're trying to move towards a, a more focused force here to, to having a more targeted and deliberate approach to meeting specific challenges. Very important in, in deterrence, of course, to understand who you're wanting to deter and from what. How do you use campaigning and integrated deterrence in, in your job? And as you think about the role of special operations as part of an integrated force. Uh, it's probably good to define the terms a little, or at least as we use them. And I think truth and lending, this is very much a work in progress on the on the U.S. side. So we don't have the answers and we spend a lot of time figuring out what this means in a practical sense. So it is the ongoing challenge we have in government of taking strategy and translating it into actual effects, right? And we have uh, obviously forces that have been doing things for a long time and trying to figure out how we draw on this more strategic framing of campaigning and integrated deterrence to make them more effective. So campaigning really for us is about taking a, a series of activities in a deliberate way and ensuring they're having strategic effects. So we would say in our national defense strategy, it's both about increasing warfighter advantage, as I just kind of talked about taking things we're already doing, but also closing warfighting gaps. So if there's areas where uh, we can do things, show a different look, do things in a different, more integrated way, not only in the U.S. system, but with allies and partners. We think that's something that needs to happen every day of the week. And you know, we often think of the role of the U.S. military, and I think most militaries think this way, that you're either preparing for war or you're conducting war. And frankly, you spend a lot more time preparing for war than you do conducting that high-end conflict. And that's really where we would use campaigning as a means of day in, day out, trying to achieve strategic effects to get to what we hope is integrated deterrence, integrated being just pulling on all the capabilities we have, allies and partners, our own interagency, in, in addition to our military, to deter the ability or desire of adversaries to move towards crisis or move towards conflict. And so 
it's fancy terms for talking about doing things together and doing things in a way that accomplish strategic effects, hopefully short of having to conduct military or more specifically combat operations. It animates everything we do every day in large part because a function of my job is to articulate the special operations value proposition of which we think is is very, very uh, prominent in the campaigning piece. And ultimately, if, as I said, we're about putting together a series of deliberate acts to create a cognitive uh, effect by deterring aggressive behavior, that's something that special operators can do in small numbers with relatively limited investments in a lot of places and, and have that effect. So at the end of the day, it's about bringing the entire enterprise towards those ends. But I think on the special operations side, we're already hardwired to think that way. That's our origins and, and probably uh, really something we need to lean into even more than we have. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. Part of the difficulty in a deterrent strategy is demonstrating that you have successfully deterred. In a way, it's, it's the dog that doesn't bark. How do you measure your effectiveness under a deterrence theory or a deterrence strategy? What are you looking for and how do you turn around to your Congress and, and to those that you're accountable for and say, We're, we are succeeding, we are, we are delivering and this is working? It's a really good question and it puts us in a situation that reminds me of uh, the debates on counterterrorism of how do you know you're succeeding? Well, it's because something hasn't happened but you can never measure if you're really succeeding or just a little bit succeeding. Um, I think we would measure it in a couple different realms. First off, do we continue to see aggressive behavior that we would see as inconsistent with international norms and longstanding practices from, from the PRC, um, from, from Russia? Our national defense strategy also talks about Iran, North Korea, and uh, violent extremist organizations. But I think in this conversation, we're focused mostly on the PRC. I think at the same time, we would look to see how uh, our partners are reacting. So if we see our partners more inclined to push back on their own volition um, against some of this type of behavior, whether it's about their own sovereignty, whether it's about their own territorial defense, I think we would measure the the will to deter as being a key part of this. And I think we would want to look at how the PRC is reacting to a, a series of our allies and partners pushing back against, in some cases, their malign activity, their bullying behavior. And at the end of the day, it's it's really hard to say that we've gone you know, so long without something happening as being the measure of success. But I think it it is. It has an element of looking in the rearview mirror as we at the same time look forward and try to see where there might be potential friction points on the horizon and do enough to get ahead of those so they become just another sort of passing minor issue, not something that turns into a major issue. So that's probably a less than precise answer, but I think it's a series of things we would look at that ultimately ensure that the reflections we're seeing back continue to reinforce our ultimate goals, which is the continued international order being largely the way it's been. We think there's value in that. That's very helpful. And it's important, I think, to to remember as well. I think you've just certainly just reminded me that, that military operations strategy and policy are are a combination of science and art. <laughs> um, and, and art's the one that's a little harder to, to get those measures on. As we think about organising and, and sort of campaigning, uh, particularly in the context of 
integration and integrated strategies. Can I ask you, uh, I'm a big fan of wargaming. I've, I've participated in, in a number. I think uh, the US system does do wargaming very well. How do you use it? What role does it have for you uh, in thinking about force design, in thinking about operational concepts and in thinking about delivering on strategy or, or translating strategy into effect as you've just talked about? It's it's really, really important. And I think to to be honest, one of the things from the soft perspective that we haven't done a lot of traditionally, certainly in recent decades, is wargaming because we were the supported element of the campaign against uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS. So wargaming was something that wasn't necessary because you were actually doing it, right? I think one of the things we have focused on is maturing that capability in the service aspects of our special operations force to be able to do what the other services do. In the first order, it's about being able to speak in the context of budgets and and force allocation and force design in a way that the services understand. So one of my colleagues uses a great term that I've shamelessly stolen, which is for those that think of things in numbers, you can't beat that with a narrative. That's not something that we had to worry about over the last decade or two. It's something that I think we need to worry about now as we think about a different challenge, different problem set. Fundamentally, I think how we use wargaming is to really test the proposition of our assumptions. Because if at the end of the day, we have an idea, we're building forces, spending, you know, billions of dollars towards them and they're questionable assumptions that we haven't tested, we haven't stressed, well, then shame on us. We're, we're not using our, you know, taxpayer dollars in an informed way. And I think in the context of wargaming, we have also found that we have a tendency to look at certain aspects in wargaming, not as comprehensive as we need to be. So we like to test big procurements. We like to test big, high-end, capable systems. Often, I would say too often in the context of the high-end warfight. If, again, back to your earlier questions and my answer, one of the things we're focused on is campaigning. That's a day-in, day-out thing that we need to be um, aligned with our forces. We need to have the right resources there to be able to do that because ultimately that's to prevent that high-end fight. And so I think one of the things that I focus a lot in uh, our war games in the Pentagon is ensuring that the special operations elements are brought into that. So we're looking comprehensively at what the types of tools we would fight with. And I think at the same time, as I mentioned earlier, because we look across all the domains, ensuring that some of our other partner capabilities, whether it's cyber, whether it's space, whether it's maritime, uh, are part of those conversations. So we're not having an artificially focused conversation because that may be how the war game developers developed it. And so at the end of the day, this is really where I feel like we've shifted from actually war fighting to, from a soft perspective, actually being part of these war games to actually test the propositions of some of our own assumptions. Because at the end of the day, it's what we're going to be using for force design. It's where we're going to be investing in high-end capability. It's where we're going to be picking winners and losers in the technology space and fielding those. And it's going to be through the lens of doing these war games because we won't have as much of the battlefield reps and sets that we've had in the past that were in some cases incontroversial because you were using it. We're going to have to have very well-designed, I think, uh, war games and scenarios and tabletops to get us there. Yeah, I think that aligns exactly with with my experience with the value 
of wargaming. It's it, it creates, if you like, a, a safe space. It's not a battlefield. No one is going to die, but you can really, really stress, like you said, to the point of breaking some of your ideas, some of your capabilities. You can test, um, again, your assumptions around partners, what they will and won't do, what they can and can't bring and, and, and how it all works. It's incredibly important as an activity, I think, to do. So that's, uh, that's terrific. One last question. I think we've got time for another aspect that came through really strongly in the Defence Strategic Review and I'm sure you're super familiar with being a soft person, is the concept of asymmetry. And it's it's a difficult one to grapple with because asymmetry can be a, a condition of the environment. It can just exist and, and you need to look for asymmetry in the, in the conditions that you're operating in. It can be an effect that you're trying to achieve and it can actually be a, a capability. How do you think about asymmetry? And, and as we go through a really important adjustment in our force design and our capability thinking, how could we usefully draw on on how you think about asymmetry and, and take that concept forward? I think it starts with what is symmetry and the asymmetry piece is then a variation of that or exception to that. And so we, we talk about irregular warfare. We talk about unconventional warfare. We like to talk about gray zone, which isn't black and white. These are all synonyms in my mind for non-traditional approaches. And it goes back to your earlier question on wargaming. If, if all we're focused on is kind of the core conventional pieces, then all we're doing is reinforcing where our strengths are and not really investing where our weaknesses are. And that is a dangerous proposition because we know uh, one has to look no farther than a place like uh, Ukraine and the Russia conflict to see that our adversaries or competitors are absolutely going to push where they think they're going to gain traction. And that is almost always where we are not as strong, which is generally in a place that is very asymmetric. So whether it's something like a Wagner group in, in Africa, um, whether it's maritime militias in the South China Sea, these are things that our adversaries are going to focus on. If we are not thinking in that space and thinking beyond where they are currently operating, we're going to be at a huge detriment when it comes time to really determine um, where the friction points are and whether we can escalate to de-escalate, whether we can push back on areas they've developed and invested in for their own their own strategic ends. And so I, I think we need to always be testing ourselves of what else are we missing? What places do we have a comparative advantage? Because I, I firmly believe that we can operate just as well as any of these other authoritarian regimes in, in the gray space. We just need to think that way. And in some cases, we define the world in a way that doesn't allow us to necessarily have that creative approach. It's, again, bring back what this conversation is about. It's where our special operators not only are used to operating, they're expected to operate. And thinking entrepreneurial innovatively uh, and bringing some of the tools that can be used then to really project power, and I mean this in a less doctrinal sense, but ability to really compete in that space is key. I think it's going to be really important, though, to understand where it is important for us to push back against activity in in the gray zone or in an asymmetric environment and where we are better off sort of mitigating to a point and then pivoting in a direction where we may have outsized uh, effects. And I think that is really, really the, the challenge in front of us and where it would be 
you know, good for those of us that are, you know, big powers like the United States and, and then, you know, others that are maybe more medium powers to really, really be focused on that. Because I think if we can bring our collective thinking and capabilities to bear in this space, it's going to be like we are in the conventional space, which is the dominant element. But we, if we don't focus on it, we do it at our own detriment, I think, and we will cede the space to others. Yep, absolutely agree. Thank you very much for a terrific conversation. This is this is one I think we really need to continue. I thank you for for bringing to, to light just how relevant special operations are in our region, a very heavily maritime region, of course, the way that we need to think or can usefully think about capability development and most importantly, effects. So uh, very keen to to continue this sort of line of conversation with with yourself and and as Aspie, thank you so much for your contribution and sharing your thoughts with us today. Well thanks for all the great questions. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to to talk to you all. It's really great to have this conversation in the context of such a a close, close ally in Australia and you know the the last couple of days of talking not only to your your special operators, but also your broader defense and interagency establishment, um, I think is really reinforced where there is, again, such tight relationships, shared views that we really need to continue to build on from the U.S. side here with with Australia. So thank you again for all the good questions. Certainly very, uh, very probing and insightful. So um, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Recently, ASPE's U.S. Army War College Fellow, Colonel Alan Troop, released the report, Impactful Mateship, which focuses on strengthening the U.S.-Australia defence relationship. Alan joins Jen Parker to discuss the report's recommendations, which include more training for inbound U.S. personnel and conducting allied-centric training. The views expressed in this segment are those of the interviewee and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, the US Department of Defense, or the US government. It's fantastic today to have Colonel Alan Troop, our special guest. Colonel Troop is a visiting US Army War College Fellow at ASPE with the academic year of 2223. Colonel Troop has a distinguished military career, including serving as a defense liaison in Canberra and various assignments worldwide. He brings a wealth of experience and expertise to our discussion. Colonel Troop has recently released an ASPE report entitled Impactful Mateship, which delves into the pressing issues surrounding the US-Australia Defence Alliance. Colonel Troop, Alan, great to chat to you today about your recently released report. Hey, Jen, thanks very much for having me here. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the report uh, over the past year. And if it's okay, I'd just like to briefly talk about my uh, my program and why I'm here at ASPE. Absolutely. Okay, great. Yeah, so um, I'm here on a one-year fellowship as a US Army War College fellow slash student. And instead of going to Carlisle, Pennsylvania uh, for a year of training at the War College there, I put my name in and was selected to participate in one of about 60 fellowships uh, around the U.S. and worldwide um, and was given the opportunity to come here to ASPE and basically give the be given the opportunity to have a unique War College experience um, and to view a strategic policy and analysis from a unique perspective uh, with a key ally uh, in the Pacific region. And so um, I was already here in Canberra. I uh, had been working as a liaison um, within defense over at Russell, and I thought it would be a great opportunity to understand how uh, strategic policymaking is considered 
uh, and then have an opportunity also to keep my family stabilized here in Canberra. Oh, thanks, Alan. So um, I've got to admit, I've spent a, a lot of my career working with the US military, and I've always really been fascinated by the size and scale differences. I was wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about what led you to your report on impactful mateship. Oh, sure. Well, um, you know, I had been here, as I mentioned, for two years previously, and so I was kicking around a couple of ideas. And really the turning point for me is that I was given the opportunity to attend a uh, session here put on by the professional development section, uh, which was meant to prepare Royal Australian Air Force uh, squadron leaders, uh, kind of mid-grade leaders, uh, to bring them up from the tactical level and give them a, uh, a strategic context before they headed off to Weston Creek at the Staff College. And when I found out about the course, uh, a student fell through and I was able to sit in. And when I came away from that uh, two-week course, I just, I, I was thinking back to how really impactful the information was and the discussions that came out of that and how much I wish I had had that before I started my job over in Russell. And, you know, everything from understanding kind of uh, Australian views on, you know, their strategic context, uh, uh, the defense of Australia, you know, uh, really the, uh, the importance that the U.S. plays kind of within the alliance and kind of considerations uh, for security perspectives within the Pacific and, you know, a whole uh, various wide breadth of conversations with experts um, from uh, both government, military, media. It was really informative for me. And I came away thinking, well, what does my leadership or the headquarters or staff officers either in Hawaii or back in D.C. or broadly, what do they not understand or what could they understand better about um, Australian defense um, apparatus uh, and the Australian Defense Force. Um, and I was thinking that would be useful as the Defense Strategic Review was coming out. Uh, and I knew it was coming out. It had been announced that it was coming out in the, you know, the April-May timeframe. And this paper would be coming out at around the same time. And how could I help my, uh, my defense establishment better understand the results or better be able to react to whatever was published at that time? And so, um, and so I thought about it and I didn't have a lot of time. And so I thought initially, you know what, I'm going to try to interview Australian leaders, uh, and Australian decision makers and get their viewpoint. But, uh, as, as you, one knows living in Canberra in January, it's hard to pin down, uh, because of the holiday period. And so I thought, well, let me get on it. Let me ask uh, us personnel that are stationed here. You know, if they've been here for longer than six months from their experience, what can we do better to understand our, our key ally in the Pacific, if that makes sense? And so I, um, I, I launched off, and, and from my, my previous network of, um, of colleagues within the liaison uh, or other uh, U.S. personnel that I had met that were exchange officers, I, was re I reached out to them and just asked a series, basically conducted an interview uh, and um, structured the interview to kind of get at some of the things that I came away from that um, professional development session that ASPE had, had held in, in late 2022. Um, to see if this was kind of a bigger uh, consideration that maybe my colleagues could shine a light on, if that makes sense. And um, yeah, over a period of about a month and a half, I conducted 12 interviews and, and it was really uh, enlightening for me um, to you know, hear the perspective of my, uh, of my uh, colleagues and essentially uh, conducted uh, kind of an analysis across the um, the interviews and these and that's how I came away with these five uh, key takeaways 
one of them being scale and um, and, and a lack of understanding of size and and um, and scale. No, I think I think it's really fascinating. You know, uh, having worked a lot with uh, the U.S. military, predominantly the U.S. Navy. Um, there's a sense of comfort between the two countries in terms of working together, you know, historic history of, of working together. And so I think in that uh, a lot of uh, ADF, Australian Department of Defence, in that uh, usefulness or, or that comfort of working together, we make a lot of assumptions about commonality when actually there's some key differences. Mm. Um, would you mind talking us through what some of the findings of your report were? Yeah, sure, definitely. Yeah, so um, it's funny you mentioned that. And, and as I was going through this process, I thought back to, and it, and it it kind of dawned on me that when I was at, so I was an armor officer for the first eight years, I was on tanks. And at my advanced course, one of the primary instructors was an Australian major who uh, had came over uh, from Australia to teach as another uh, U.S. instructor. And I thought back to, wow, you know, it would have been really interesting to hear his perspectives about either difference in tactics, difference in maybe our shared history or views on our history, um, and to understand kind of maybe the challenges that his tank units would have dealt with, um, you know, in the austere environments that they might train in in Australia or on on operations. And then I thought too, when I was stationed in Korea, actually my first line supervisor was an Australian squadron leader, you know, uh, and I worked for the United Nations Command uh, Military Armistice Commission, and so it was a joint role and it was a unique role. Um, but you know, I never sat down with him to kind of, you know, it was just kind of it was another it was another colleague, it was another coworker. And we just got down to business working. And I think we, we take in, in those different kind of experiences, that, that's the bottom line. You know, we, we're there to get the mission done. But, you know, taking a moment, taking an opportunity maybe to kind of um, bend the ear. And I know that happens, but sometimes it might get busy or, or you might have a, a specific, um, you know, whether it's in a school environment, um, a, a, a syllabus or something that you stick to. And that's kind of where it gets to some of my recommendations from the report. But going back to some of the key findings, um, so it, it talks to your point, Jen, about, you know, um, we are so close. We do have so much, uh, so many good exchange opportunities uh, so that we take some things for granted. And so, you know, some of the other observations from my paper is that we do, I think from a U.S. side, I think we do mirror image. Um, you know, we use the term, you know, mirror imaging to kind of fill in the, you know, it's a, a kind of a term to use to to fill in those areas where you don't necessarily know a specific piece of information about the other. You know, and so um, and so each of the findings kind of has a thread of mirror imaging within them, if that makes sense. Um, but I think, you know, because of our shared history, I didn't realize, you know, that the U.S. and Australia had served, you know, side by side in operations all the way back to World War One until I got here. You know, um, I definitely knew that uh, we worked together during the global war on terror overseas contingency operations. Um, you know, I've, I definitely have come across Australian liaisons um, in the U.S., um, and so, you know, I think because we speak the same language, I think because we have a shared military history, we use the same equipment. Uh, I think it's very easy to quickly mirror image in those areas that you might just take for granted, you know, and the next piece that I came away with and, and in some of the interviews and in, in talking to the participants, individuals mentioned, uh, Hey, we need to do better in understanding Australia and their views on sovereignty. And, and that's difficult. And I remember one of my first meetings that I had over in Russell, I was, I was having a conversation and I was, I was bringing up a topic of uh, kind of mutual consideration. And, and, um, and my Australian colleague mentioned that, well, you know, the first thing we need to consider is sovereign, you know, the sovereign considerations. And I thought, okay, okay, well, what does that mean? You know, and even since my paper has been published um, just a couple of days ago, 
a couple of my my colleagues that I work with in, and and some that I didn't even know worked with in defense have approached me and said, you know, your point about sovereignty is well taken. Um, I'm trying to understand like what our sovereign considerations are, you know, and so from an allied perspective, yes, we want to be considerate of uh, sovereign considerations um, and being a good partner. Um, but when something like that is mentioned, oh, okay, well, this is something maybe we need to to maybe further d- uh, delve into. Um, the next piece, a little bit, um, uh, every single participant I, I interviewed mentioned back home, the U.S. leadership, um, you know, staff officers, they oftentimes don't understand the internal geography of Australia. And I can really highlight this one. I was just in Japan two weeks ago scouting out for my next job. And I talked to one of um, uh, my future coworkers and they said, hey, you know, I'm actually going to Australia on leave in two months. And I said, oh, that's great. And I said, what are you going to do? And they said, well, I'm going to go to Sydney and then I'm going to drive down to Melbourne, spend a couple of days. Then I'm going to drive up to Cairns and visit up there, go to the Great Barrier Reef, and then come back down to Sydney. Um, and I asked, well, how long are you going to be there for? And they said, well, 10 days. And I said, well, are you going to you're going to drive all that way? No, I wasn't. They said they weren't planning on flying. And I think just something as simple as, you know, planning, um, you know, a visit is kind of lost on, uh, on people, uh, on the American side. And so, um, and so just understanding kind of spatial geometry and distances is really crucial, especially as you um, look at the relationship is probably going to look to grow. You know, the announcements have been made about maybe increasing rotational forces, um, whether it be submarines or um, air power. Um, but, you know, the the sustainment side, the operational planning side, they really have to have a good understanding um, of what the infrastructure considerations. I went to Great Ocean Road um, a couple of days ago over the long weekend and, um, you know, just driving uh, on uh, some of the unimproved roads, you know, just kind of exploring, you know, that, that that there's some things that you can't get from just looking at a map. And that's one thing that a lot of my uh, my colleagues mentioned that, you know, until you actually come to Australia, until you actually get to see, you know, whether it's up in Darwin or down in Adelaide uh, or over in Perth, it, you, you really don't, not going to have a full appreciation of the geography. Thanks, Alan. And, and that that finding about, you know, the understanding of, of physical scale of Australia, was that fairly similar to in terms of understanding the scale of, of the ADF? You know, it's always struck me that working alongside the US Navy, that uh, you seem to be structured a lot more, at least in Navy sense, around specialist, mm. whereas the ADF, just you know, pure uh, size, is structured around generalist. Was mm. there an understanding of, of that kind of difference of scale of the amount of people we're talking about and the number of missions we need to perform? Well, I would say, it's a, you know, the number one point that was brought up and the number one point that um, a lot of people that I've talked to since the report has come out is, you know, that the U.S. Uh, defense side struggles to understand that. And I, I don't necessarily know in terms of, you know, specialist versus generalist, but when you really look at the numbers, um, you know, under 65,000 uh, total uniform personnel, uh, that's not all warfighters. You know, a lot of those are also, you know, your sustainment, your administrative. So when you start kind of dwindling in that down, um, it doesn't leave you a lot, you know, and then considering, and I didn't realize this till I was here, you know, the domestic responsibilities. So it's one thing to consider the operational requirements and the operational responsibilities, um, both in the neighborhood, you know, in the local region, but then also on, on operations. Um, but understanding that, you know, the challenges of flooding and the ADF's response to providing domestic um, response to that, uh, you know, bushfires, 
are a real big consideration. And so, um, and so when you're, when, as a U.S. planner, as you're considering, you know, contingency planning within the Indo-Pacific, there's a term here that I had never heard of uh, called concurrency uh, before I got here. And that's a real consideration in terms of as a, as a capable partner, as a, uh, a partner that is willing to work with the U.S. in the Indo-Pacific, we on the U.S. side need to understand that there may be some other challenges out there. Uh, so, you know, concurrency would be, you know, simultaneous events that the Australian defense side would have to react to or respond to. And so, you know, um, understanding, you know, the capacity challenges, understanding the domestic challenges, whether it's responding to natural disaster or, um, you know, sovereign concerns within the Indo-Pacific, we uh, need to probably better understand what those priorities are uh, and then also what, um, you know, what the overall ability for the defense side uh, in Australia is to respond to maybe U.S. contingency planning. So we've talked a bit about some of the findings of your report and some of the the elements where at times there could be a, a misunderstanding. Um, what do you see as um, mitigants or, or ways to kind of address these as, um, as the ADF and the U.S. Um, services continue to work closely together? Sure. So um, the one key thing I recognize is it's really difficult to get more resources, especially uh, um, as um, you know, there's a lot of big ticket items that both sides are looking at, whether you're talking AUKUS or uh, other capability development. So I tried to make, I tried to look specifically at recommendations that were practical and low cost. And I think the easiest ones, and I kind of alluded to earlier is, I think we could do a good job of um, preparing um, U.S. personnel coming over to Australia, uh, whether it, uh, for liaison role or as exchange officers. And I, and I kind of almost look back to that um, that two week course, you know, as a potential model. Um, you know, uh, being able to kind of and it doesn't need to be two weeks. Um, it could be tailored to whatever um, you know would make the most sense. But I do think um, you know a, a, an introduction of um, understanding, you know, kind of Australian strategic context, strategic geography, uh, strategic considerations would be very helpful and would be able to kind of elevate at least the individuals that are coming here in country and get them, you know, caught up on some uh, on perspectives that otherwise they might not learn for another six to 12 months, you know, based on uh, happenstance. I also looked at potential for th that similar training maybe uh, be provided to Australia facing um, action officers or planners that are either in Hawaii or back uh, stateside. You know, as we see the defense strategic review is only, and, and the U.S.-Australian relationship, as I say in my paper, is only going to be on a trajectory of rise. So there's going to be new individuals, new organizations or agencies uh, that are going to be looking to Australia for cooperation. And so maybe we need to look at focusing on areas there to, uh, to try to get them spun up to speed on uh, maybe some of these considerations I mentioned. I also recommend uh, potentially trying to get as many Australian planners uh, and those that could even touch something to do with Australia, get them over to Australia. I know it's expensive, but I think it's a small price to pay to give the kind of that situational understanding. Leveraging uh, the Australian ex uh, exchange officers or liaison officers that are already in the U.S. You mentioned you do have a, a significant footprint. Maybe try to look at um, at ways, and I know there are probably organizations that are doing this, but look at ways to um, to leverage those individuals to share their experiences, um, share their perspectives that will either prepare individuals coming over for work or just for professional military education at our war colleges or our command and general staff college. 
Well, look, thanks so much, Alan. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. Uh, it's a fantastic report. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here at Aspie. Uh, for anyone that is looking for the impactful Mateship report, you'll be able to find that on the Aspie website. Thanks for your time. Hey, Jen, thanks. Really appreciate the opportunity to come talk about my research. And before we wrap up here, I just want to thank my wife and my daughter for their support over the past year. They've been really supportive as I've been working through this project. Thanks again. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.